Chapter 7 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 7 My Start at South Sea A Strange Life Arrival of My Brother I buy up a shop, cheap servants, queer patients, dangers of medical practice, income tax joke, my marriage, tragedy in my house, a new phase. What with cleaning up, answering the bell, doing my modest shopping, which was measured in pennies rather than shillings, and perfecting my simple household arrangements, the time did not hang heavily upon my hands. It is a wonderful thing to have a house of your own for the first time, however humble it may be. I lavished all my care upon the front room to make it possible for patients. The back room was furnished with my trunk and a stool. Inside the trunk was my larder, and the top of it was my dining-room table. There was gas laid on, and I rigged a projection from the wall by which I could sling a pan over the gas-jet. In this way I cooked bacon with great ease, and became expert in getting a wonderful lot of slices from a pound. Bread, bacon and tea with an occasional saveloy. What could man ask for more? It is, or was, perfectly easy to live well upon a shilling a day. I had obtained a fair consignment of drugs on tick from a wholesale house, and these also were ranged round the sides of the back room. From the very beginning a few stray patients of the poorest class some of them desirous of novelty, some disgruntled with their own doctors, the greater part owing bills and ashamed to face their creditor, came to consult me and consume a bottle of my medicine. I could pay for my food by the drugs I sold. It was as well, for I had no other way of paying for it, and I had sworn not to touch the ten golden pieces which represented my rent. There have been times when I could not buy a postage stamp, and my letters have had to wait but the ten golden coins still remained intact. It was a busy thoroughfare with a church on one side of my house and an hotel on the other. The days passed pleasantly enough, for it was a lovely warm autumn, and I sat in the window of my consulting room, screened by the rather dingy curtain which I had put up, and watched the passing crowd or read my book, for I had spent parts of my scanty funds on making myself a member of a circulating library. In spite of my sparse food, or more probably on account of it, I was extraordinarily fit and well, so that at night, when all hope of patience was gone for that day, I would lock up my house and walk many miles to work off my energy. With its imperial associations, it is a glorious place, and even now, if I had to live in a town outside London, it is surely to Southsea, the residential quarter of Portsmouth, that I would turn. The history of the past carries on into the history of today. The new torpedo boat flies past the old Victory, with the same white ensign flying from each, and the old Elizabethan culverins and sakers can still be seen in the same walk, which brings you to the huge artillery of the forts. There is a great glamour there to anyone with a historic sense, a sense which I drank in with my mother's milk. It had never entered my head yet that literature might give me a career, or anything beyond a little casual pocket money, but already it was a deciding factor in my life, for I could not have held on and must have either starved 
or given in but for the few pounds which Mr. Hogg sent me, for they enabled all other smaller sums to be spent in nourishment. I have wondered sometimes as I look back that I did not contract scurvy, for most of my food was potted, and I had no means of cooking vegetables. However, I felt no grievances at the time, nor any particular perception that my mode of life was unusual, nor indeed any particular anxiety about the future. At that age everything seems an adventure, and there was always the novel pleasure of the house. Once I had a moment of weakness during which I answered an advertisement which asked for a doctor to attend coolies in the tea gardens of the Terai. I spent a few unsettled days waiting for an answer, but none came, and I settled down once more to my waiting and hoping. I had one avenue of success open of which I could not avail myself. My Catholic relatives had sent me introductions to the bishop, and I was assured that there was no Catholic doctor in the town. My mind, however, was so perfectly clear, and I had so entirely broken away from the old faith, that I could not possibly use it for material ends. I therefore burned the letter of introduction. As the weeks passed and I had no one with whom to talk, I began to think wistfully of the home circle at Edinburgh, and to wonder why, with my eight-roomed house, one or more of them should not come to keep me company. The girls were already governessing or preparing to do so, but there was my little brother Innis. It would relieve my mother and yet help in me if he could join me. So it was arranged, and one happy evening the little knickerbockered fellow, just ten years old, joined me as my comrade. No man could have had a merrier and brighter one. In a few weeks we had settled down to a routine life, I having found a good day school for him. The soldiers of Portsmouth were already a great joy to him, and his future career was marked out by his natural tastes, for he was a born leader and administrator. Little did I foresee that he would win distinction in the greatest of all wars, and die in the prime of his manhood, but not before he knew that complete victory had been attained. Even then our thoughts were very military, and I remember how we waited together outside the office of the local paper that we might learn the result of the bombardment of Alexandria. Turning over some old papers after these pages were written, I came upon a letter written in straggling schoolboy script by my little brother to his mother at home, which may throw an independent light upon those curious days. It is dated August 16th, 1882. He says, The patients are crowding in. We have made three bob this week. We have vaccinated a baby and got hold of a man with consumption, and today a gypsy's cart came up to the front door selling baskets and chairs, so we determined not to let the man ring as long as he liked. After he had rung two or three times, Arthur yelled out at the pitch of his voice, Go away! But the man rang again, so I went down to the door and pulled open the letterbox and cried out, Go away! The man began to swear at me and say that he wanted to see Arthur. All this time Arthur thought that the door was open and was yelling, Shut that door! Then I came upstairs and told Arthur what the man had said, so Arthur went down and opened the door and found out that the gypsy's child had measles. After all, we got sixpence out of them, and that is always something. I remember the incident well, and certainly my sudden change of tone from the indignant householder who was worried by a tramp, to my best bedside manner, in the hopes of a fee, must have been very amusing. My recollection is, however, that it was the gypsy who got sixpence out of us. For some time Innes and I lived entirely alone, 
doing the household tasks between us, and going long walks in the evening to keep ourselves fit. Then I had a brainwave, and I put an advertisement in the evening paper that a ground floor was to let in exchange for services. I had numerous applicants in reply, and out of them I chose two elderly women who claimed to be sisters, a claim which they afterwards failed to make good. When once they were installed we became quite a civilised household and things began to look better. There were complex quarrels, however, and one of the women left. The other soon afterwards followed suit. As the first woman had seemed to me to be the most efficient, I followed her up and found that she had started a small shop. Her rent was weekly, so that was easily settled, but she talked gloomily about her stock. "'I will buy everything in your shop,' I said in a large way. It cost me exactly seventeen and sixpence, and I was loaded up for many months with matches, cakes of blacking and other merchandise. From then onwards our meals were cooked for us and we became in all ways normal. Month followed month and I picked up a patient here and a patient there until the nucleus of a little practice had been formed. Sometimes it was an accident, sometimes an emergency case, sometimes a newcomer to the town or one who had quarrelled with his doctor. I mixed with people so far as I could, for I learned that a brass plate alone will never attract, and people must see the human being who lies in wait behind it. Some of my tradespeople gave me their custom in return for mine, and mine was so small that I was likely to have the best of the bargain. There was a grocer who developed epileptic fits, which meant butter and tea to us. Poor fellow, he could never have realised the mixed feelings with which I received the news of a fresh outbreak. Then there was a very tall, horse-faced old lady, with an extraordinary dignity of bearing. She would sit framed in the window of her little house, like the picture of a grand dame of the old regime, but every now and again she went on a wild burst, in the course of which she would skim plates out of the window at the passers-by. I was the only one who had influence over her at such times, for she was a haughty, autocratic old person. Once she showed an inclination to skim a plate at me also, but I quelled her by assuming a gloomy dignity as portentous as her own. She had some art treasures, which she heaped upon me when she was what we will politely call ill, but claimed back again the moment she was well. Once, when she had been particularly troublesome, I retained a fine lava jug, in spite of her protests, and I have got it yet. It is well that medical practice has its humorous side, for it has much to depress one, most men never use their reasoning power at all on the religious side, but if they did, they would find it difficult sometimes to reconcile the sights which a physician sees with the idea of a merciful providence. If one loses the explanation that this life is a spiritual chastening for another, and thinks that death ends all, and that this is our one experience, then it is impossible to sustain the goodness or the omnipotence of God. So I felt at the time and it made me a materialist. But now I know well that I was judging a story on the strength of one chapter. Let me give an example. I was called in by a poor woman to see her daughter. As I entered the humble sitting-room, there was a small cot at one side, and by the gesture of the mother, I understood that the sufferer was there. I picked up a candle, and walking over, I stooped over the little bed, expecting to see a child. What I really saw was a pair of brown, sullen eyes full of loathing and pain, which looked up in resentment to mine. I could not tell how old the creature was. Long, thin limbs were twisted and coiled in the tiny couch. The face was sane, but malignant, 
"'What is it?' I asked in dismay when we were out of hearing. "'It's a girl,' sobbed the mother. "'She's nineteen. "'Oh, if God would only take her, what a life for both! "'And how hard to face such facts "'and accept any of the commonplace explanations of existence!' Medical life is full of dangers and pitfalls, and luck must always play its part in a man's career. Many a good man has been ruined by pure bad luck. On one occasion I was called into a lady who was suffering from what appeared to be dyspepsia of a rather severe type. There was absolutely nothing to indicate anything more serious. I therefore reassured the family, spoke lightly of the illness, and walked home to make up a bismuth mixture for her, calling on one or two other cases on the way. When I got home, I found a messenger, waiting to say that the lady was dead. This is the sort of thing which may happen to any man at any time. It did not hurt me, for I was too lowly to be hurt. You can't ruin a practice when there is no practice. The woman really had a gastric ulcer, for which there is no diagnosis. It was eating its way into the lining of her stomach. It pierced an artery after I saw her, and she bled to death. Nothing could have saved her, and I think her relatives came to understand this. I made £154 the first year, and £250 the second, rising slowly to £300, which in eight years I never passed, so far as the medical practice went. In the first year the income tax paper arrived, and I filled it up to show that I was not liable. They returned the paper with most unsatisfactory scrawled across it. I wrote, I entirely agree, under the words, and returned it once more. For this little bit of cheek, I was had up before the assessors, and duly appeared with my ledger under my arm. They could make nothing, however, out of me or my ledger, and we parted with mutual laughter and compliments. In the year 1885, my brother left me to go to a public school in Yorkshire. Shortly afterwards I was married. A lady named Mrs Hawkins, a widow of a Gloucestershire family, had come to Southsea with her son and daughter, the latter a very gentle and amiable girl. I was brought into contact with them through the illness of the son, which was of a sudden and violent nature, arising from cerebral meningitis. As the mother was very awkwardly situated in lodgings, I volunteered to furnish an extra bedroom in my house, and give the poor lad, who was in the utmost danger, my personal attention. His case was a mortal one, and in spite of all I could do, he passed away a few days later. Such a death under my own roof naturally involved me in a good deal, of anxiety and trouble. Indeed, if I had not had the foresight to ask a medical friend to see him with me on the day before he passed away, I should have been in a difficult position. The funeral was from my house. The family were naturally grieved at the worry to which they had quite innocently exposed me, and so our relations became intimate and sympathetic, which ended in the daughter consenting to share my fortunes. We were married on August the 6th, 1885, and no man could have had a more gentle and amiable life's companion. Our union was marred by the sad ailment which came after a very few years to cast its shadow over our lives, but it comforts me to think that during the time when we were together there was no single occasion when our affection was disturbed by any serious breach or division, the credit of which lies entirely with her own quiet philosophy, which enabled her to bear with smiling patience not only her own sad illness which lasted so long, but all those other vicissitudes which life brings with it. I rejoice to think that though she married a penniless doctor, she was spared long enough to fully appreciate the pleasure and the material comforts 
which worldly success was able to bring us. She had some small income of her own, which enabled me to expand my simple housekeeping in a way which gave her, from the first, the decencies, if not the luxuries of life. In many ways my marriage marked a turning point in my life. A bachelor, especially one who had been a wanderer like myself, drifts easily into bohemian habits, and I was no exception. I cannot look back upon those years with any spiritual satisfaction, for I was still in the valley of darkness. I had ceased to butt my head incessantly against what seemed to be an impenetrable wall, and I had resigned myself to ignorance upon that which is the most momentous question in life, for a voyage is bleak indeed if one has no conception to what port one is bound. I had laid aside the old charts as useless, and had quite despaired of ever finding a new one which would enable me to steer an intelligible course, save towards that mist which was all that my pilots, Huxley, Mill, Spencer and others could see ahead of us. My mental attitude is correctly portrayed in the Stark Monroe letters. A dim light of dawn was to come to me soon, in an uncertain fitful way, which was destined in time to spread and grow brighter. Up to now the main interest of my life lay in my medical career, but with the more regular life and the greater sense of responsibility, coupled with the natural development of brain power, the literary side of me began slowly to spread until it was destined to push the other entirely aside. Thus a new phase had begun, part medical, part literary, and part philosophical, which I shall deal with in another chapter. End of chapter 7